This morning, take your Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 2. So continue in our series in Acts. This has been exciting. I love it. Uh, During the book of Ruth, as we finished up that series, the one thing I loved about the book of Ruth is it got a lot of people talking about a lot of different scenarios. And just just proved over and over how God is an awesome God, how He works out all the details, how He goes way before us, comes goes with us, comes behind us. He just takes care of every aspect of life. And it's amazing that the conversations that took place in the hallway, in the foyer, and so forth as we were going through that book and how people were relating it to their life and what things that are going on and how God is working and so forth. But the amazing thing also is that uh, as we're coming into the book of Acts, I'm seeing something very similar in the sense that um, as we're talking through these things, people are talking, they're asking questions, they're saying, what about this and what about that? And one of the interesting things that came out last week about the the message was, um, we didn't really talk about it a lot, but... Uh, you know, who are the, who are, in Revelation, when it talks about the 12 pillars and how there's an apostle's name written at the bottom of each of the pillars, well, we know that Judas's name was not on it. And so the question came, well, whose name is on it? Is it Paul? Is it Matthias? And so I was talking with another pastor friend the other night at, at a basketball game, and he says, well, Ken, that's really easy whose name's on it. And I kind of looked at him, I says, well, I believe I know who's on it, but I said, how is it so easy? He goes, well, it's really easy. He says, Paul Thias. It's not Matthias or Paul, it's Paul Thias, just so you know. Uh, at any rate, some of you will get that later. <coughs> but anyway, it's just been fun because people are looking, in, looking into it, they're studying it, they're, they're learning about it, and uh, I'm loving what we're seeing here. And I hope that these messages really do stir within our hearts a desire to get in God's Word and to study it. Because here's the deal, if you're not studying God's Word... Um, you really do need to be like the Bereans that search the scriptures daily to see if what is said is so. Um, don't just take my word for it. Get into it. Study it. Apply it. There are a lot of tools online now that you can use to really help you understand a lot of it. And uh, as long as you're going in the right direction and asking the Holy Spirit to guide you, He's going to show you some things, and, and I just encourage you to, to get into it. Uh, as we're going to look in today, and we're going to start in Acts chapter 2, verse 1. I'm not sure how far we'll go, um, but I want, I want us to think about something. That, you know, you've heard me say on several occasions that the early church had no satellite TV, uh, no internet, no phones, no airplanes, buses, or cars. I mean, is that an amazing thought? I mean, what? I remember one of my kids here just a few months ago saying, well, y- you didn't have a cell phone growing up? Well, no. Uh, I can remember when cell phones first came out, only the wealthy, you know, that were on the lifestyles of the rich and famous, you know, could afford them. I mean, remember they had the big bag phones that took everywhere? I mean, if you were a business owner or you had a really fancy car, then you had one of those bag phones, and you were the cat's meow, man. Remember those? Man, if you had a bag phone now, you'd be thinking, what planet did you fall from? I mean, we got sleek iPhones, you know. It's amazing how technology has just driven our world. But you know, in the days of Jesus Christ, there was none of that. In fact, uh, they also did not have any of what we would call the luxuries of the modern church life. I mean, none. Uh, They didn't have nice buildings with air conditioning and heating. Uh, They did not have uh, 
microphones and padded seats and computers and video projectors or age-appropriate Sunday school curriculum. They didn't have any of that. And yet they led countless people to God and established a multitude of churches. And you wonder, how was this accomplished? I mean, really, when you look at the big picture, I mean, there wasn't even stadiums where, you know, there were big monster crusades and revivals taking place. It was very minimal. It was life touching life. And it started off with a handful of men called the 12 disciples who Jesus Christ sent out in the power of the Holy Ghost going out and reaching people. And I just have to say today, I still think that's the best method. Life touching life, and the one person telling someone else what has happened to them, as we talked about a, a week ago. You know, you look at the story of the woman at the well. She did not go to any seminary, Bible college, or, or, or a theological institute before she went out and told someone what happened to her. She simply shared with someone else what Jesus Christ had done in her life. And I really think that still is the most basic form of sharing your faith. It doesn't get any easier than that. So you wonder, how were all these things accomplished? Well, it wasn't because of the, the mega millions, because there wasn't that either. It wasn't somebody paying someone else's way. In fact, there are many times Jesus Christ said, as you get to this town, if they're not interested, kick the dust off and go to the next one. The bottom line is there wasn't an unlimited pocketbook that, that was funded all the goings out that, that took place. It was simply something that money couldn't buy, and it was the power of the Holy Spirit. And I really do think that today it's something that we don't beg God enough for. And we don't expect God to work in those ways as he did. And it's an amazing thing also to consider, just in our introduction here, is that the God that we read about in the Bible is the same, the very same God that we worship today. Think about that. Let that soak in just for a minute. It's the same God. You see, the God that performed the miracles of the Old Testament didn't change and, you know, you know, you know, hang up his hat and retire and choose a different God for the New Testament and then do it again sometime for 2,000 years later. It's the same God. And if God was powerful then, guess what? The God who does not change is still what? Powerful today. But sometimes we have this idea that it's a different God, a different generation, a different way of doing things. Yes, things do change, but we still serve the same God, and we still have the same Holy Spirit working within us. And we forget that sometimes. Well, it's interesting to note the timing of this event. And I want to go ahead and begin with chapter 2, and I want to read uh, down through verse 13. I'm not sure how far we'll get today, but we're going to start with verse 1. It says, when the day of Pentecost had arrived, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like that of a violent rushing wind came from heaven, and it filled the whole house where they were staying. And tongues like flames of fire that were divided appeared to them and rested on each one of them. Then they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in different languages as the Spirit gave them ability for speech. There were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. When the sound occurred, a crowd came together and was confused because each one heard them speaking in his own language. And they were astounded and amazed, saying, Look, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that each of us can hear in our own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, those who live in Mesopotamia and Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them speaking the magnificent acts of God in our own languages. 
They were all astounded and perplexed, saying to one another, What could this be? But some sneered and said, They're full of new wine. You can imagine the scenario that's taking place in your minds. I can go back to maybe the confusion and, and just the question of what's going on in this place. But we see that they're still gathered here. This says they're in this, all together in one place. Assumingly, they're probably still gathered around this upper room. They've just finished that. They had chosen an, uh, another disciple. <coughs> and, and, and the business of, of receiving the Holy Spirit is about to take place here. Interesting thing to note here is that the day of Pentecost, the Pentecost means 50th or 50, uh, as the Feast of Leviticus chapter 23 and following verses 15 through 22 uh, took place some 50 days after the Passover. And you find out that 50 days later, Jesus Christ has ascended into heaven and the Holy Spirit has descended and coming down. And so this Passover has already taken place. Now Pentecost is coming. And uh, Pentecost was called the Feast of Weeks, according to Exodus 34, uh, 22 and 23. But this first feast, the Passover, represented the death of Jesus Christ, the ultimate Passover lamb. And I love this because, in fact, in John chapter 1, verse 29, uh, Jesus, we, we find out he's going to be... Uh, uh, crucified on the cross of Calvary. And, and John the Baptist says, Look, behold the Lamb of God, which will what? Take away the sins of the world. So here is the Lamb of God, the perfect sacrifice, is coming, and he's recognizing this. And then he says in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 7, that this is the supreme sacrifice that is coming. But Jesus is now ascended, and the Spirit is coming down, and Jesus is going to fulfill his promise. Well, he we said, what promise is that? Turn your Bibles over back just a couple pages to John chapter 14. We mentioned this briefly the first week. But John chapter 14, verse 16 and following. Actually, verse 15, he says, If you love me, you will keep my commands. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor, that's the Holy Spirit, to be with you forever. He is the Spirit of truth. The world is unable to receive him because it doesn't see him or know him. But you do know him because he remains with you and will be in you. And you know the will be is... Future tense. He's coming, and once he comes, he'll be within you. And he says, I will not leave you as orphans. I am coming to you. So this promises that as he leaves, he's going to remain, the Holy Spirit is going to come, be with them, be in them. He's going to be forever. He says, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. He said, this is what's going to happen. And then over just a couple of chapters in chapter 16 and verse 16, he says, a little while and you will no longer see me. Again, a little while and you will see me. So this whole idea, he says, I'm leaving. I'm going to be gone for a while. And, uh, but he's not going to leave them as orphans. So back in our text in Acts chapter 2, we see that this day of Pentecost had arrived. They were all together in one place. And now three things begin to take place here. Three observations. Number one, the sound of a violent rushing wind. Um, I don't fully understand that. In my mind's eye, I kind of have an idea of what I think might have took place, but I'm probably going to find out one day as I stand before the Lord that, oh man, you are way off. Uh, and I think you're going to find that too about some things. But all we do know from Scripture is that it says, suddenly a sound like that of a violent rushing wind came from heaven, and it filled the room, the whole house where they were staying. 
So in my mind's eye, they're probably still up in that upper room, possibly. They're still all gathered together, and uh, these 120-some people, and there's this loud, violent sound, this rushing wind comes in. Um, I can't imagine what that fully means. Um, I always thought it was just a little bit funny, just kind of a humorous side note. You ever seen those uh, news bleepers, bleeps, you know, the bloopers, and bleepers, bloopers, the news bloopers where they, they show someone, and I don't, I don't understand where, where this comes from or why they feel like they have to do it, but the news anchor is standing out in front of a hurricane coming right at them, and, you know, the wind is blowing them, and they're kind of leaning forward, but they got to have the microphone, they got their huge, you know, rain parkas on, and they're winning, you know, and then all of a sudden, vroom, the wind takes them way back. I think, why do they have to do that? We just take your word for it. It's raining outside. You don't have to go out in the middle of the storm to prove it to us. But you can know the scenario that's taking place there. They're out there and this wind is... You know, and they're just going crazy. I can only imagine it's something like this. And all of a sudden... As fast as it started, it's probably ended. And something is totally different. It's not the same anymore. The second thing is tongues like flaming fires. And this is interesting. There's all kinds of conjecture of what this really means. Um, I'm kind of old-fashioned. I kind of take it as something different than what some people take it. I think it's the presence of, of God coming upon these people. Nothing more. In fact, I, I see this in Exodus chapter 3 and verse 2, where the angel of the Lord appeared to them in a flame of fire in the midst of the bush. Um, I don't necessarily see it as anything other than other than the presence of God manifesting himself in this room. I could be wrong, and maybe one day I'll stand before the Lord and he says, man, you're way off on this one too. I could be wrong. But I see in Scripture that often fire is a symbolic uh, gesture of the presence of God in a place. And so as I see it, as the wind came rushing in and there's this violent sound and it says tongues of fire, I think God's presence came upon them in a very special, near way during this time. And then we see a third thing that took place here in uh, verse 2. I'm sorry, verse 3. And tongues like flames of fire that were divided appeared to them and rested on each one of them. Then they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in different languages as the Spirit gave them ability for speech. I really believe at this point that the Spirit came and rested upon them. It didn't rest on certain ones of them. It says it came upon all of them during those that were in this room. And this is not the only time. In fact, a little bit later you find that that the Holy Spirit came at other times. In Acts chapter 4, verse 8. That the Spirit came again. Uh, in Acts chapter, I'm sorry, chapter 4, verse 31, the Spirit came again and rested upon them again. But at this particular moment, the Spirit of God came in, rested upon them, and some began to speak, or they began to speak in different languages. Uh, this is always an interesting conversation amongst believers. It's one of those scenarios where you get 50 Baptists in a room and say, what does this mean? You get 50 different answers all the times. But I do believe this. They spoke in languages that were not normal to themselves. Um, So we see that Acts chapter 2 is the fulfillment of Acts chapter 1 verse 5 where he said the Spirit will come, they're to wait, and now he has come, and now these things have happened. So the Spirit rested on them 
And the filling of the Spirit happened again later, but they began to speak in different languages. As the Spirit gave them ability. Uh, Let me just say for a moment, this is where I stand on the whole issue of tongues. I believe that God can and does, in certain scenarios, use tongues for his own purposes. Uh, I don't think it's for the modern church age as a general whole. I don't think it's as a purpose for us in the body of Christ to constantly just be talking out. I don't think that's what it's referring to here. Um, And I think there's plenty of scriptural truth to back that. But why did the spirits come? I think we see a good answer to that in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. In 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 21 and 22, says this, It is written in the law, I will speak to these people by... Speak to these people by people of other languages and by the lips of foreigners, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. It follows that speaking in other languages is intended as a sign, not for believers, but for unbelievers. Prophecy is not for unbelievers, but for believers. So there is purposes. In this particular case, I don't think it was all necessarily for believers, but for unbelievers. And I think God's Word has shared that in other places. And yet in Isaiah chapter 28... Turn there just for a moment. Isaiah chapter 28. Verses 11 and 12. says, So he will speak to this people with stammering speech and in a foreign language. And he said to them, This is the place of rest. Let the weary rest. This is the place of repose. But they would not listen. So even though he would offer them to the ability to hear in their own tongue, they still would reject. They still would not listen. So let's go back to this that's happening here. We see in chapter 2, verse 4. Then they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in different languages as the Spirit gave them the ability for speech. One of the things we have to realize that in, this, in the whole circumstances of tongues is that it's not just an individual saying, hey, I'm going to speak in tongues. I'm not going to speak in a language that is foreign to everyone else. And uh, it was the Spirit giving them the ability as He chose not as they, as individuals chose. Um, and that's quite different than what happens in some circles today. It's an individual saying, hey, I want to do this. I, I, I have friends who are in these circles, and the bottom line is they're taught and trained to do it by the pastor's own, own words to me. The bottom line is that's not how it took place in Scripture. Um, in Acts chapter 2, verse 5, it, there it says, there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. So there were men who were gathered, devout men who were gathered, Jewish folks. And when the sound occurred, a crowd came together and was confused because each one heard them speaking in his own language. So as they're coming together, and you remember here, there are 16 different language groups approximately that were here in this area. I mean, the scripture makes it very clear. Um, Verse 9 Verse eight says, "Aren't they?" Or verse seven says, "Aren't these all speaking Galileans?" But look at verse nine: Parthians, Medes, Elamites, those who live in Mesopotamia and Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, um, and it just goes on: uh, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them speaking the magnificent acts of God in our own languages. You say, was that something that was a one-time deal? No, I don't think it was a one-time deal. Uh, I think this particular circumstance was unique to them, but it wasn't a unique situation that's never happened again. We say, well, why do I say that? 
Um, I've got a friend in the, that pastored for 20-some years in Indianapolis. And this man used to quite often go to third world countries, used to go places that were deep in the jungle. Uh, he used to go places in India, places in the Philippines that were remote places where people don't normally come. And what happened on a couple different occasions was mind-boggling. And it can only be explained by God showing up and doing something similar to what took place here. These are places where the gospel had not yet gone forth. There's the first thing. But as he went out into the jungles in the Philippine, uh, uh, in, in the Filipino islands there, as they went out, this pastor began to preach and expound the word of God. And for a, a long time, he just sat there and preached. Because anytime you preach to an interpreter, it takes time. So if you're preaching for 30, 35 minutes, and you've got an interpreter for 30 or 35 minutes, you've been sitting there for an, over an hour. So as he was preaching for 45, 50 minutes, interpreting for another 40, 45 minutes, they've been sitting here for nearly an hour and a half. And what happened after the time was over was absolutely amazing. When they were done, uh, some of the men came up to him and through an interpreter said, Pastor, why did you have an interpreter so, you know, to, to repeat everything you were telling us? And he stood there in confusement, and he said, I don't understand what you're saying. And the interpreter says, well, why did you have me interpret for you? They want to know why I was interpreting for you while you were preaching, because they could hear you just fine. And he says, well, that's impossible. I don't speak your language. And they looked at him in amazement and said, we understood every word you were saying. Now, here's the thing. Is that not what took place in Acts chapter 2? where there were people who were gathered together. It was not this ambiguous tongues, so to speak, that take place in churches across America. It was a situation where the word of God was going forth, and there were all people groups who were hearing it in their own language. I believe God has done that on occasion. I believe that God can still do that on occasion. But I don't believe it can take place in the circumstances of most modern churches today. I think that's a different type of scenario that is in my opinion, unbiblical. But it said that the Spirit arrested upon them, and they were filled with the Spirit, and as the Spirit gave them the ability, they began to speak. And we see that even still, some of them still would not believe, and they rejected. So we find out here, going back to verse 6, when the sound occurred, a crowd came together and was confused because each one of them heard them speaking in his own language. And they were astounded and amazed. They understood it. The, the, what was taking place was understood by all these different people groups. How can you explain that except for the Holy Spirit was beginning to work in their lives and to teach them what he wanted them to know? But the confusion is, look, aren't these all who are speaking Galileans? How is it that each of us can hear in our own native language? Then he goes down to verse, uh, verse 12. They were all astounded and perplexed, saying to one another, What could this be? But some sneered and said, They're full of new wine. It wasn't a scenario where they were drunk. It wasn't a scenario where they had been drinking too long and they all got hangovers and you know they're just babbling. It wasn't babble. It was simply something that they could that was spoken and they heard in their own language. It was not Babel. It was something that they could understand very clearly. So as we look at this, we see that it's God who does this. 
Verse 4, Then they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in different languages as the Spirit gave them the ability for the speech. It wasn't individuals saying, I'm going to do this. It was the Spirit empowering them to do this according to God's will. As we look at this, we see something else that's taken place, and I don't want to get too far ahead in the next section. But one thing I want us to understand is this. You can't do and speak the things that God wants you to do and speak apart from the Holy Spirit's power working within. And this is where I say back in our introduction, we live in a world that has every tool known to man. Every tool. From satellites, to TV, to internet, to phones, to the, all the technologies, microphones, computers, projectors. And yet, what do we see across America? I think what we see is a lot of ministry happening apart from the Holy Spirit's empowering. You see, a lot of things can happen. And someone once said, and I don't know who coined the term, but God gets blamed for a lot of things that he has nothing to do with. You see, money can buy a lot of things, can it not? Money can buy nice seats. Money can buy air conditioning. Money can buy all the greatest of technology. But money cannot buy the empowering of the Holy Spirit. You've got to have the Holy Spirit working within you. You've got to have the Holy Spirit guiding and directing, filling you daily. Without it, you're working in the flesh. And the flesh will fail you. Over and over, we see this. And that's why I believe God told them to wait. Don't go forward in your own spirit. Or, or, I'm sorry, in your own flesh. Don't go forward in your own experiences. Don't go forward. I want you to wait until this power comes upon you. Then, according to Acts 1.8, you'll be my witnesses. And you'll have the power to do what you need to do. Because apart from it, you're working in the flesh. As we think about this in closing, I want us to be thinking about our own lives. Do you have the filling of the Holy Spirit upon you? When's the last time we've asked for it? When's the last time we pleaded for God? As I said last week, as they're up there in the upper room, we can only imagine what they're praying for because God's Word doesn't specifically tell us. But maybe they were, as we said in conjecture, maybe they're possibly thinking about the coming of the Holy Spirit. Maybe they're praying about direction as Jesus has just ascended into heaven. Maybe they're praying about who to choose as the next disciple. Whatever they're doing, they were earnestly in prayer together. And now the Holy Spirit has come, and now they're empowered to go out and do what God has called them to do. Remember the song that Casting Crown sang between the altar and the door? <coughs> A lot of decisions are made at the altar, but once you go through the door, it's forgotten. Between the altar and the door. See, last week, many of us raised our hands and said, Hey, I need to get back to where I'm earnestly praying. Many of us said we need the Holy Spirit to be working in our lives. But the question is, has anything changed from last week to this week? Let's be honest with ourselves. Are we still depending on God? Are we still you know, pleading for the Holy Spirit to work in our lives, to do for us what we cannot do ourselves? Is that even of importance to us once we leave? Without it, you cannot do anything. He says, with me you can do all things, but apart from me you can do what? Nothing. We need the Holy Spirit. And all at this point, the Holy Spirit has come, and he's working within, and he's empowering them. 
this message that was going forth, they heard it, they understood it, and they're all, because they heard it and understood, they were able to apply it and go forward and do the work. And you're going to see in the, in the verses following, but Peter begins to preach, and, and he's telling them what's going to happen, and there's some exciting stuff that's going to happen. But it's all because the Holy Spirit began to work. What about you and I? <coughs> Where's the venue for which you and I pray? Hopefully it starts in our own houses. And we're on our knees and we're saying, God, we need you. We need you to do what we cannot. But then it should go together where we're meeting corporately in groups, praying. And he says, where two or three are gathered, there am I in the midst. So we're confessing our faults one to another and we're praying with one another, seeking God's face and asking for the Holy Spirit to work. And we go forward and we continue to do that. Because without him, you can't do it. What he's called you to do. I want to challenge us all to take the time to pray and to ask for the Holy Spirit to work. This Pentecost was an amazing time. And you're going to see as we go on, I'm especially excited as we get down towards the end of chapter 2, where God just begins to multiply the church because of faithful obedience. You see, it's not the nice auditoriums and the padded seats and the air condition and the microphones and the projectors and the technology. They're just tools. But God decided to work apart from all those tools in, his de- in that day. And he can do it again. It's really going to take obedience of the people first before any of, that other, any of those other things even matter. Would you agree? It's just a building. And let me just say this. As I said before, I'm excited what God's doing here. Um, we'll soon have three churches in one. Um, let me just tell you what's going on. <clears throat> we have New Life Deaf Fellowship, is what they chose their, as their name. New Life Deaf Fellowship. And uh, they're meeting right downstairs right now. There's about 10 or 12 of them. And uh, they have a Sunday school at 915. They have a morning service at 1030 like us. And uh, they're reaching out and they're seeing people come. New Life Deaf Fellowship. On uh, Sunday afternoons, or some, either Sunday afternoon or early evening, like, like 4 or 5 o'clock, uh, we have a Nepali Indian church that's going to be meeting in the library. And uh, they've already started a church here in Henrietta. And uh, they're working in an apartment building that has a small living room. And they've outgrown it already. God is working. And so he came to me and he says, I know you already have the deaf church using your facilities or any way we could use your facility one night a week. How can you say no? Churches are the most unused buildings in America. They sit empty six days a week. Let it be used for God's word to go forward. Amen? Amen. That's exciting. When the Holy Spirit is at work, I don't want to stifle it. When the Holy Spirit is doing something, I I want to get on board. But are we asking God for us for those things to happen? Are we asking God just to, to show up and to work in a special way? Something that, that only the Holy Spirit's power can enable us to do. I trust that we are. That we might see God's hand at work. That we might see God doing great things. That's what I'm praying for. Amen? I know this. The Holy Spirit came at Pentecost. And He still comes today. Every time someone invites Jesus Christ into their life, guess what? Holy Spirit takes up residence. 
And they have all of the Holy Spirit. And then there's that daily filling that comes from just being with God, spending time in His Word, spending time in prayer, where He empowers us to do what we cannot do in and of ourselves. We need to be filled with the Spirit. I don't know about you, but I'm challenged as I read this. I'm challenged to draw closer to God in prayer and to ask God to do what I cannot do apart from Him. Are you? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came in and changed their lives, turned everything upside down, and began to do what they could not do apart from him. God, might we understand that and learn that, that there's not anything that we can do apart from your Holy Spirit's working in our lives. We need you, God. We need you to show up every day of our lives. We need you to do what we cannot do in and of ourselves. And I pray, God, that that would be our desire. That that would be our heart's cry. So, God, I ask that you'd work in our hearts this morning. And, Lord, as we partake of the Lord's table in a few moments, that we might just take that moment to understand and to remember And to celebrate what you did for us on the cross. Because your word tells us that had you not gone back to heaven, had you not ascended, the Holy Spirit would not have come. But really it's your presence that's left behind to fill us with your power to do what you've called us to do, to enable us to be obedient. And I pray that that would be our desire, Lord, to walk in the Spirit. So, Lord, as heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, as we ask that God's people be praying just for a moment. Say, Pastor Ken, that's my desire. I want the Holy Spirit to use, to fill me, to empower me, to use me for God's glory. I don't feel like me. Sometimes you're selfish. Sometimes you're living in the flesh. Sometimes you're kind of doing your own thing apart from God. But today is a reminder that they could not do what God had asked them to do apart from the Holy Spirit's work. He's still able to do powerful things. He's still able to work miraculously amongst us. So Pastor Ken, that's my desire. Would you pray for me that I would earnestly seek God's Spirit, His Holy Spirit to fill me? Yes, yes, all over. I just challenge you. Most of us have risen up, raised our hands. We, we're confessing we need it. Let's ask for it. In the stillness of this moment, let's just pray. Let's let's lift our voices to God as a corporate body. We need the Holy Spirit to work. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, you know our hearts. You've seen our hands. You know the very things that are on our minds. Lord, you know how often we just work in the flesh apart from the Spirit's leading. (coughs) And I pray, God, that you'd forgive us. As individuals, as body of believers, Lord, as a church, for operating in our own flesh, might we be filled with your Spirit daily not just indwelt, because Lord, we know you indwell us as your children, but to be filled daily. 
by spending time in your word, time in prayer. I pray, God, that you would do within our own lives what we cannot do apart from you. And we might be able to look back and see where your hand was at work. So be with each one who raised their hand their heart towards you this morning, Lord, that you would just do what only you can. And we'll give you the praise and the glory, for it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I'm going to invite Pastor Jim to come.